This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk some football on London Live. Coming up, we are actually going to deal with another form of elite athlete. In fact, two forms. We'll talk with Dr. Jamie Burr from the University of Guelph about a study that details runners' hearts versus swimmers' hearts. Which ones are doing what? And you would think, wait a minute. What do you mean? What are they doing? They're doing the same thing. A heart pumps blood around the body. End of story. It's not very complicated unless you want to take anatomy. But no, this is different. They've been studying this. And the physiological changes that go on in the hearts of elite athletes in both of those areas, running and swimming... Yeah, they uh, they could help the rest of us in terms of what they've been finding. So that's a good thing. And at some point, we've got to switch over from the heart and talk about the lungs. And we're, we're looking to get a, a good expert on what is happening with vaping because I'm really afraid of something. You keep hearing stories about people with breathing problems and it kind of circulates back to – vaping and the fact that if you are smoking some of the thought is that after a while you quit smoking you can get rid of all the tar and crap from your lungs that will happen vaping may not be the same sort of thing because of some of the chemicals involved we don't know enough about it so if you're vaping right now stop doing that you have, we have no idea you don't want to pick up something you never want to have something in its first cycle whether it is a vehicle or you never a computer program, an app, you know you can help to get the bugs out, but you want to get something after it's been tried and tested a little bit, after that bait has gone through and they've made all of the little fix-ups to it. That's what you want. Well, same sort of thing with vaping. Who decided to try that right away? Okay, from there we move on to what is happening on the football field. This weekend, under the lights, the Western Mustangs are home to the Carlton Ravens. Western is now 3-0. and They've picked up big wins over some tough teams. They've played a lot of tough teams so far in the OUA season. Their schedule is very front-loaded, but they're 3-0, and and they're coming off a victory over the McMaster Marauders. Greg Marshall joins us. Victory over his old team. He's the head coach of the Western Mustangs. Greg, you've got to tell us, with a win over Mac, what was it like to watch the game film? It was good. You know, I thought we uh, we, we got better on offense, which uh, we took a step there. Yes, we played better on the offensive line, and you know, we've kind of made some progress there in each of the first three weeks. So, you know, that's uh, that's encouraging. Um, you know, we had some a lot of injuries going into that game uh, um, on defense. And so we were, you know, without, you know, two of our starting defensive ends, uh, one of our linebackers, two of our defensive backs. So lots of changes on our defense. And I thought that uh, although we, you know, at times gave up yardage in the air that we, uh, we didn't get the pressure that we needed, uh, we, you know, held them to, you know, under 20 points, which was, uh, you know, a really good effort. So overall, um, you know, we're in pretty good shape right now. 3-0, and we played, you know, a few of the best teams in our conference, and, uh, you know, we got another good game this weekend. 
You talk about the running game and what it meant. You look at your offense, it's had such a great running game for years and years and years. When you look at Trey Humes pick up 129 yards on the ground, and you mentioned, hey, Chris Merchant, sometimes he he just goes. He runs for over 100 yards. How key was that because of how dangerous Mac can be in their secondary? Yeah, it, it, it was important. And, it, and a couple times what happened, you know, you know, Mac brought a lot of pressure. And when they do that, you know, if they leave a gap, then, you know, Chris is taking off and going. And so um, he did a good job in, in, in situations where, you know, we needed a crucial first down and he took off and made it. So that's kind of the difference sometimes. You know, you could have, you know, the, the perfect play called and, it, and you execute it on offense. And sometimes, you know, they have the perfect play, you know, called against you. And then all of a sudden, you know, Chris takes off and, and gets it's a first down on his own. It's like that's you know that's disheartening to the defense and certainly encouraging for us. The path that Trey Humes has been on to get to where he is now. Can you take us through that? You know, he 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 came in here. He was a highly recruited uh, you know freshman. Um, but he's playing behind Cedric uh, Joseph and Alex Taylor, and and you know two great players. And Trey would get his carries. You know, at the end of the fourth quarter in the last five minutes of the game. And you know he he showed us you know at that time that you know he could do it. I mean, he's got a really good burst. He's got really good feet. Really good sense of our offense. But you know he he played in games when you know the the game was over. So you know now he's the man and uh you know he really you know stepped up and you know even even some in the first games you know when he didn't have a lot of yardage that was more you know kind of a offensive line running game you know us developing the running game it takes a little bit of time to be able to you know you know coordinate with you know the offensive line and the fullbacks and everyone to to get it meshing and getting to where we need to be and i think that uh, against a good mac defense trey showed us what he could do Greg Marshall, head coach of the Western Mustang football team. Western home to Carlton under the lights on Saturday night. Greg, there are programs that will have to dress starters as freshmen or freshmen as starters. And you come in and, and you got to go. Your program sometimes allows these guys to learn a little bit. What does that do for a player? How hard is it on him? And then what does he realize when he does hit the field in, say, his second, third, fourth year? We, we we certainly hope that they're prepared that they use those you know those those you know one or two or three years to prepare and to get physically mature ready to play, you know the the interesting thing about university football in our country is that you know we have freshmen that are seventeen eighteen years old and they're competing against players and other teams that are twenty two twenty three twenty four years old it's it's a, it's a huge physical difference so one you know there's lots to learn um, they they come from different programs where the, the coaching across the country is, is variable they might have great coaching they might have got little coaching but the, the biggest thing is the, the physical adjustment they most of them need a year or two uh, to get bigger and stronger in order to be able to compete against men so um, that that's kind of the the you know we have a big roster we keep a lot of players we try to look after them make sure that they're all taken care of that they do well in school and I always say that retention is more important than recruiting like yeah we're going to recruit you know our incoming class but how many of those players will stay and, and not play uh, for a couple years and that the retention really is the key to developing a good program finally let's talk about Carlton they come in at one and one they've scored they've only played two games but they've scored kind of a, a league low 38 points at the moment what do they do 
they're they're young on offense. You know, they got a couple playmakers on offense. They got two, you know, two or three very good receivers, skilled receivers, uh, a very talented uh, running back. Um, the offensive line is young, and they have a young quarterback. And you know that just that just takes time. And there's no, there's you can practice uh, you know forever, and and you got to play games and you got to get more experience. And the one thing I've noticed in Carlton's offense is it's, it's getting better. It's better you know in week two than it was in week one, and you know, we have to put an end to that. The, the, the strength of Carlton is their defense. They play great defense. They're maybe one of the top defenses. And if you look statistically, their offense is, is near the you know the bottom of the conference, and their defense is ranked you know one of the top defenses or the top defense in the in the conference. So great linebackers, uh, you know, very athletic front, uh, good guys in the in the defensive secondary. They'll give us some challenges. So we you know it's going to be important for our defense to play a great game, give us good field position. Have our punter Mark Leggio make sure he wins the field position battle, and then our offense, you know, you know, get its chances. Greg, best of luck this weekend. Good, thanks, Mike. Greg Marshall, head coach of the Western Mustang football team. Heart health is a pretty big deal. Talk to any doctor; they'll tell you. If you don't have one of those, or if it's not working very well, life can get complicated in a hurry. So there is some research that's being done at the University of Guelph, and it looks at runners' hearts and swimmers' hearts. Because believe it or not, the heart can go through actual physical changes in life. That kind of, I don't know, does that make you feel uncomfortable? I want mine just to stay how it is. If it's working right now, just, just stay right there. Just keep doing that. I'll go over here and do this. You keep doing what you're doing. We'll all live happily ever after for as long as we can. But no, there are physical changes that go on. And researchers at the University of Guelph have been looking into this. And joining us right now is one of those researchers, Dr. Jamie Burr. Dr. Burr, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you today? Not bad. We talked about this last week when it first came out. So it's fascinating to be able to speak with you about it. Because I think one of the things that struck all of us is maybe something that you might not even bat an eye at. It's the idea that... If you are doing something athletic for a great amount of time at a very high level, that the actual actual physical makeup of something like your heart could change. That that almost makes me feel like, uh oh, is is that a a good thing? Is, is this something that you wouldn't bat an eye at, or is that something you look at and go, that's interesting? Yeah, it may seem obvious to us as exercise uh, researchers, but I think, you know, most people, when you really step back and look at it in its essence, it makes sense. When we challenge our body to do something uh, that is harder than it normally does, and that's what exercise training is, I mean, we're looking for an adaptation. So, you know, the heart is like any other muscle in many ways. If you lift a lot of weights, you do a lot of bicep curls, your biceps are going to get bigger. Um, Now, does the heart get bigger? Yes, it, it does get stronger, but we want it to adapt in a certain way whether that be for health or performance. So that's really how we got to looking at what we did. And, and as you point out, we looked at some of the best athletes in the world. These were elite runners and elite swimmers um, because they've been doing it for a really long time at a really high level. And that's where we wanted to look at it and say, okay, do the hearts adapt in the same way or are there some differences? And it's interesting to know that there are differences. And if you didn't hear us talking about this last week, we're going to get to that in just a minute. First off, how do you test someone's heart and and look very closely at it to get the results that you did without them having to hand over their heart for examination? 
Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, obviously, these are living athletes. Um, it's not something that we're doing uh, post-mortem. So there are many ways we can do this. I mean, the simplest way, which most people probably think of, is looking at the electricity that's coming from the heart using an ECG tracing. Um, in this case, we actually try to get images. So we use echocardiography, which means we're using ultrasound. Um, we bounce sound waves off, and we can get an image of how the heart looks and how big it is and how it moves. And specifically in this work, um, we're using some novel measures uh, that don't just show us, for example, how big uh, the chambers are. They actually show us how, um, how the muscle is moving um, and how it's twisting on itself and relaxing, and that's what's really important for us. We're talking with Dr. Jamie Burr, an exercise researcher at the University of Guelph, and we're talking about findings that compared hearts of elite swimmers with hearts of elite runners. So when you say elite, and you've kind of referenced that these are some of the best of the best. This is not someone who, say, goes for a jog three times a week or hits the pool three times a week? That's right. So um, for the purpose of this study, our definition of elite is somebody that competes at the international level. So uh, for the swimmers, we actually went to world championship um, competition, and, and we had people volunteer so we could come and we'd look at their heart when they weren't swimming. Um, and we're very lucky here in Guelph that we have many Athletics Canada athletes that live and train here um, around the university and work with the Speed River track and field team. Um, so we actually flew in athletes from all over Canada and we studied them here as well. Okay, so let's get to the findings and what they showed to you. What did you find in this? Well, the first thing I want to say is, uh, and, and this is a really important message, so I don't want it to be lost, is that all of these athletes who live healthy lives and they train very hard, they have healthy hearts, and typically they're healthier than the general population. Having said that, it appears that swimmers and runners might adapt a little bit differently. And the biggest change there is, is really in the way that the heart refills. Um, we think some of these differences may relate to the fact that a swimmer is constantly exercising in a, a laying down posture. So um, blood doesn't have to fight against gravity to get back from the legs up to the heart. Um, we also think, you know, things like the, the weight of the water, the hydrostatic pressure helps push that blood back to the heart. So um, we think that might result in a runner's heart because it's working against the stress of getting blood back to the heart to push it out with the next beat. Uh, they might actually get a little bit better at that. Um, what that means long term, we're still not sure. So we're, we're following that up. How much of a theory did you allow yourselves to have going into this as to which may have been a better aerobic exercise for the heart. And I'm not saying that swimming is not a good aerobic exercise, but you said it, the, the runner's hearts show maybe a little bit more strength. So how much did you allow yourself to think about what the outcome could be? Yeah, so I mean, this first study that we did, um, it was very exploratory. Um, nobody had ever asked this question before. We just sort of assumed that, you know, when you do aerobic type exercise, you know, you will get adaptations. But we never said, are they always going to be the same? Um, I'm careful to say that the runner's hearts were stronger because I don't know that that's completely accurate. It's actually that they refilled a little bit quicker, and we think it's because of the way they sort of untwist themselves and sort of suck blood in. Um, We have since followed this work up. In fact, this past summer, uh, my research team and I spent about three weeks in South Korea uh, where the world championships of swimming were going on, and uh, we're asking sort of those next-level questions where we're actually testing You know, if we take somebody and lay them down and then we sit them up, is there a difference in the way that their heart refills? Um, We're adding an exercise stress because to this point, everything we've done has been at rest. And I think we can all agree that when the heart starts beating harder to keep up with the demands of exercise, things may change. So 
Um, we don't have those answers just yet, but um, we're working on it this year. You mentioned that people have never asked these questions before. Does that surprise you? To be honest with you, yes, it does. Um, I myself come from a swimming background, and then uh, I was a triathlete. So uh, this is kind of front of mind for me because here I work with these elite runners in town, um, and I was really surprised when we went to the literature and looked at it, and there was really nothing there, sort of this assumption that it had been done. I'll also point out it's not, it's not easy research to do. Um, there's certainly limitations, and you know, we can't image a swimmer while they're swimming, for example. We can't put our medical gear underwater. Um, and I think that's part of the reason um, why these questions haven't been addressed yet. What would some of your research be able to show? Would you give it to people who are training high-level athletes? Would it be in the healthcare field? Where do you think that this could wind up? Yeah, I think we're looking a fair ways ahead. Um, I mean, I certainly do hope that there are applications to this. And I think it could be everywhere from health to performance. I mean, if we look at health, um, it's fairly common that we, we sort of look at the highest level and then say, okay, how do we take that down to something that applies to more people? And if I can give you an analogy uh, that I like, it, it's sort of looking at F1. Like, why do we care about F1 race cars? Because it doesn't affect most people. We don't drive at 300 miles per hour. But it has led to things that do affect the rest of us on a daily basis because we came up with things like uh, disc brakes, right? And understanding how to make a high-level car work, we can understand how to apply that to the regular person. And in this case... Perhaps it has some application for um, exercise rehab. Maybe somebody that's had a heart attack. You know, what is the best way to get the heart back to the way we want it to work? Should we be doing water exercise or should we be walking or running? Um, I could see an application there. It could have an application to athletes as well because if we follow this through and there is a difference between swimming and running, say, in the way the heart refills, maybe we want to recommend cross-training at certain times of the training schedule. Uh, maybe we can squeeze that last little bit out of the training adaptation that we want. We're talking with Dr. Jamie Burr from the University of Guelph. One final thing, and that is a, a timeline on the next stages of your research. What's coming up? Well, great question. Uh, as I mentioned, we have collected a whole lot of data. It's very intensive to get through it. So we're really hoping in the next few months um, to get through some of that um, and kind of figure out what the, the next um, step will be and where that points us. We're going to collect a little bit more data on runners as well, and uh, we're going to make those comparisons and, see, and test our, our theories to see if they're actually correct. Great stuff. Well, it is a fascinating result already, and I can't wait to see what else comes out of it. Dr. Burr, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. That is Dr. Jamie Burr, University of Guelph. So a little bit more twist and push from a runner's heart, maybe because it's not buoyant. They're not sure just yet. As Dr. Burr pointed out, they don't want to say the runner's hearts are stronger. So if you're thinking, you know, it's not quite New Year's yet, but I guess I could get going. I guess I could join a gym or maybe uh, join the Y and do a little swimming. Yeah, well, there's at least some information to look at. The, the important thing to realize is no matter what you choose to do, it's good. If you are moving, that's a good thing. Doesn't matter really what it is. That's kind of the first step in all exercise programs. Yeah, I've been thinking about joining a gym, you know, like an old school. What have you been doing lately? Uh, thinking about joining a gym. Well, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of not really a thing. You want to exercise, start, take one foot, lift it in the air, put it in front of the other one. That's it. That, that'll do it. Or if uh, you're sitting down, take your arms and grab some little weights and move them around. 
That's what it takes. So swimming versus running, this is getting pretty technical, and that's kind of why they looked at elite runners and elite swimmers in this just to really see those differences. But there's a lot of interesting education that could come out of that study. Busy time of year with all the things going on. We're over the back-to-school wave, and that's good. So now we can kind of settle in and just take advantage of all of the things that are happening. And one of the things that returns to London this weekend is the London Air Show. And joining us in studio is Jim Graham to talk about it. Jim, when someone says air show, it conjures up images immediately, right? It conjures up memories for anyone who's ever been to one. It also conjures up, I don't know, a certain feeling. It's a very tactile feeling. I mean, it's the, the, the gut-wrenching sound of an afterburner ripping over your head. It's seeing these amazing aircraft that defy gravity through power. It's meeting the young men over the years and women who are the air crew of these things doing extraordinary uh, uh, missions and, and talking about capabilities that we in the general public go, wow, not only are they defending us in the airspace, but they're doing things to make sure all of our conveniences of modern life are maintained and it's all being done quietly behind the scenes and these 25-year-old brilliant folks uh, are, all, uh, are all out there and it's so cool to learn about all of the background of the planes, of the people, and also the whole community support that comes uh, comes together to have these three to five hundred aviators that we host in London over the weekend to uh, to show them what London's all about. And ultimately, the air show's goal is to give back to the community, to the Children's Health Hospital and the uh, Parkwood Veterans Hospital. And that's something we should touch on right now because when the air show came back, because it went away for a little while in London, but it is now back. You brought it back as a not-for-profit. When you sat down to meet about that, to talk about that the first time, how did that go? Well, it's, we, we knew we had to make it a business. It had to be sustainable. Uh, so we know how many hours are required to get the show started as well as all of the volunteers put into it. And we wanted to make sure those hours, the return to the city was going to be being a nonprofit organization to benefit the Fanshawe Norton Wolf School of Aviation, the Children's Hospital, and the Veterans Parkwood Hospital. Those of us that were in the inner circle doing the numbers, that's where our hearts lay when it came to the community, and that's what we're going to make sure sustains as Airshow London uh, grows and uh, and uh, gives back as much as we can. Jim Graham, volunteer, board member, as we talk about the London Air Show. So let's look at the absolute date, September 13th, 14th, and 15th, this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay, so we're getting very, very close. Now, in terms of getting tickets... Airshowlondon.com. You can buy them online, and and uh, they're at a reduced rate until Friday at four when our gates open. After that, you can continue to buy them online or buy them at the gates at the airport. Uh, we've made sure that it's really easy to get in and out of the airport. Parking, uh, parking, bus shuttles. Again, check Airshowlondon.com, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Airshow London, and uh, yeah. You can get those tickets right through, and then you can arrive at the airport if it's a last-minute decision, uh, and we'll get you uh, get you those tickets. It's a full full family entertainment event. We've got Start.ca has a huge kid zone for the kids. Canadian Forces Recruiting has kids stuff going on. All the crews that are parked on the ground want to talk to the kids. We got a B-17 bomber of World War II vintage, so Grandpa is going to enjoy seeing that plane as well. 
Uh, we've got so much going on on the field prior to the air display starting. And then once the air display starts, we probably have the best air display, uh, the best flying display in, uh, in Canada. How do you build a flying display? How do you look at it and say, okay, how do we make this something that people are going to crane their necks upward and, and never put them back down until everybody lands safely on the ground? Gary Vanderhoek, our director of air ops, and his assistant, Mike Lewis, uh, they are very well connected in the fighter pilot and the Air Force community, Canada and in the United States and around the world. So they start piecing this thing together. Well, they'll start next year's in October. And so – Pilots love to come to London. London's got a great reputation for hosting them well. Uh, they like to come to university and college towns. They like uh, London. London has a has a great reputation in the flight suit industry for for looking after uh, the crews. So they start asking to come, uh, and uh, they the aerial display they start putting together as early as January. They've got planes confirmed. We've got groups like the CF8 Canadian Forces F18 demo, the Snowbirds, the Skyhawks. They're already on board. The U.S. Air Force uh, announced their uh, their demo team and where it's going uh, back in December and every December, and we're always part of their circuit. So, yeah, the bones, the, the outline for the flying display is done as early as January, and then we start to fit in what we think is going to be cool to uh, to families uh, and, and make sure it's a fast, loud, exciting air show. Yeah, anyone who hasn't been on the grounds of an air show, the power that is there. It is – the once they uh, kick the tires and light the fires, it is <laughs> awe-inspiring what they can do with those engines to defy gravity. Jim Graham joining us as we talk about the air show coming up this weekend. Jim, you're not a fighter pilot, but you, when you were younger, are a pilot. What is it like to fly? Oh, you know, I flew in little Cessnas and stuff. So it, it puts a whole different perspective on the world. You look down and and, uh, and all of a sudden you're very, very humbled. Uh but to get in something like the aerobatic planes that we're going to see with Mike Trigerson and Pete McLeod or to uh, to be in, in, in one of those military aircraft and the capabilities they have and the missions they have to do and those young men and women taking them right to the extremes to make sure they look after everything we need them to look after. Uh, I am I've been doing this for 30 years as a volunteer and every year I'm more impressed. In sports, they will say, you know, goalies, uh, goalie in any sport, a little bit different personality. When you meet pilots, do you know you're talking to a pilot? Do you know that, you know what, there's something, you know, you just have this adrenaline coursing through you all the time. Is there something different about them, that personality that they have to have to do what they do? I wish I could say there was a stereotype. I've met guys that talk about stocks when you're introduced, when you're introduced to them in their <laughs> flight suits. And I've seen guys that are right out there that make Maverick and Top Gun look like a, uh, look like a, a, a figure skater. Uh, I mean, uh, these guys, a uh, whole range of personalities, but they all have one common love of aviation and extreme sense of professionalism. But it's funny. You talk about the goaltenders. We're going to have the C-5 Galaxy, the biggest trans military transport plane the U.S. Air Force flies. Tails five stories high. We're going to have the B-52 Bomber, which has uh, been flying for 40 years. Huge airframe. It's got enormous capabilities to, uh, to drop uh, offensive weapons. And every plane in between. So we got the whole variety of mission roles. And, uh, yeah, so we've got the guys that are the goaltenders, uh, bringing the bringing the supplies. We've got the refuelers. We've got the guys that are doing electronic countermeasures. When then we've got the guys that are at the front line. The A10 demo. Uh, that plane is a close air support combat aircraft, so it's down in the weeds, uh, doing missions with uh, with coordinated with folks on the ground. We got the entire spectrum of military flying as well as civilian flying. 
I mean, we're going to have a Fanshawe Aviation School. They've got a number of jets, and they do have a number of programs that they do here in our community very quietly that are world-class. And that's something Londoners in the region can uh, can be introduced to. We've got the International Test Pilot School here in, in London. They're going to have some aircraft out to show us. They're, uh, they're doing things that are internationally renowned. Uh, we've got the Jet Aircraft Museum. They've got some of the heritage jets that they're maintaining and restoring right here in London. General Dynamics is going to be showing off some of the things they're doing. So it's really neat to see. Not It's not just a family event, community event, and then it is an international class military air display. It's uh, it's something that the whole family, mom through grandpa, kids, and, and dad looking at the afterburners are going to walk away with uh, feeling like they've spent an incredible day that uh, is once in a lifetime. That's tremendous. Okay, one more time for tickets. What do we do? Where do we go? Airshowlondon.com uh, or at the gates. Uh, gates open Friday at 4 o'clock. The flying display starts Friday at 5 o'clock, goes right till uh, sunset. Saturday, gates open at 9, flying display starts at 12.30, goes right to about 4.30, same thing on Sunday. It's going to be an exciting couple of days. You're going to hear afterburners ripping through the skies. Tomorrow, Thursday, is arrival start. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, and uh, we look forward to hosting them here in London and uh, showing them how interested and appreciative we are for the uh, incredible things they do. Jim, what you've described is mind-blowing. Can't wait to see it as it arrives and takes off here in London. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.